The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am Michelle Jawando filling in for Leslie Marshall on this beautiful Tuesday. Oh, oh, I am two days behind Thursday afternoon. Um, I have the honor and privilege of serving as the Vice President of Legal Progress at the Center for American Progress, which is the preeminent think tank in Washington, D.C. You know, it could be because I'm here, but I think there's a lot of other really great colleagues and friends that I have working with me here at CAP. And for people who don't know, the Center for American Progress, uh, our founder is uh, John Podesta, our current president is Neera Tandon. And basically, we believe that in order for progressives to win, they have to have great ideas. And so, Kemp, we spend a lot of time thinking about what those ideas are. We write about them, we talk about them, and we try to get them out to the masses. So I have been here for a good year, and during that time, I have befriended many of my colleagues, but one of them was gracious enough to join me for the first time I'm co-hosting on this, uh, guest hosting on this great show, uh, the Leslie Marshall Show. And that friend of mine is none other than the campaign director at the Center for American Progress, Miss Emily Tish Sussman. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm quite honored to be here on the inaugural segment. This is the inaugural segment. I actually am super excited because I think somebody brought me cookies. Love cookies. Cookies are a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, so I need all people who plan on calling in today to be pro-cookie people. So please remember that. That's fair. That's fair. I feel mm-hmm. like it totally is. Um, so there's a lot happening today. One of the things that I'm incredibly sad about, though, is Alan Rickman, who's the Harry Potter star, um, Severus Snape, for all of my Potter fans, has passed away. As I am. Yes, yes. Cause huge Potter. Huge Potter. Read all the books. I like can't actually wait for my three uh, young daughters to grow up old enough so we can read the books together and watch all the movies. So you, know, you don't totally have to wait. I actually went to Harry Potter Land with my two best friends. Okay, see, yeah, I wouldn't tell too many people that. Yeah, well, but, no, it's uh, out there now. Okay. You are welcome on the next trip <laughs> is all I'm saying. Great, I will keep that in mind. Um, but on to uh, some other topics. So, Emily, tell us a little bit of kind of about what you're doing at CAP. And the reason I brought Emily to, in is tonight at 9 p.m. we have the next GOP debate. And so I'd love to kind of give, uh, let you share with the audience the kind of state of the race right now and what we should expect tonight. Got it. Great question, what we should expect tonight. Well, there hasn't been a Republican debate in about a month, so they've had plenty of time to gather their thoughts. I did see an incredible video today of a Donald Trump song at a rally. I'll recommend people Google that. That was really exceptional. Um, I think where we've been since the last Republican debate is that Trump is no longer the clear front runner in Iowa. It is now really between Trump and Cruz, Ted Cruz. And much of the support for Ted Cruz has come a little bit from 
um, from Donald Trump. But really, a lot of that came from evangelicals who had been supporting Ben Carson. But then once he started making some more obvious missteps, started gravitating more towards Ted Cruz, who's a little bit more polished. Um, he's very anti-establishment in his rhetoric, um, which is interesting considering that he actually is an elected member of the Senate and that he, in his rhetoric so far, has been a total warmonger. But mm -hmm. nevertheless. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really, we are going to see a battle between them. But I think that for the most, Trump has been able to really stand on his own um, because he just doesn't give any specifics. So it's a little bit hard to, to get into it with him when there's no specifics. Um, and the last debate, what we were anticipating and did see, in fact, play out, was really a battle for the, the heart of Republicans who are turned off by Trump altogether, which is a lot of Republicans. Mm -hmm. People are shocked by how much support he has, but he's really hit a ceiling. There are a lot of very reasonable people and reasonable Republicans in this country who are very turned off by Donald Trump. So we have seen a battle between Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, the senator from um, the first term senator from Florida. Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, really battling it out to appear stately. Right. Like a real statesman. So, you know, uh, this evening for our listeners, uh, the GOP debate taking place 9 p.m. will actually happen in Charleston, South Carolina. And for a lot of our listeners, they know that this debate is the location of not one, but two really high-profile um, instances recently. So, of course, we have the um, Charleston massacre of the white supremacists who killed nine parishioners and the historic Mother uh, Emanuel AME Church, and then also the shooting of the unarmed black man, Walter Scott by a white officer. So these are two really racially sensitive issues um, taking place in the same city where we're going to have this GOP debate. Do you expect we'll hear anything about these two issues tonight? I, I do think they'll bring up the recent tragedies in sort of a nod. There's nothing that conservatives hate more than being called racist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Their policies may not support communities of color that in fact may hurt communities of color. Nevertheless, they really do hate being called racist. So I do think that we'll expect to see a nod towards these events. Mm -hmm. They will express sympathies, but I don't expect that we'll see any sort of policies that would help the community, not just um, on economic issues where they have really failed, um, but specifically on gun violence issues. I think that we will see a total deflection on them. I actually think that Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, who gave the response to the president's State of the Union last week, I think she sort of previewed language that we'll see that I thought was horribly offensive to say that in South Carolina, the community came together after these shootings um, and preferred hugs instead of riots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't even, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. think she used the word riot, but right, it's like right, lively right. or right. something like that. <laughs> as if, as if the community had no right, right. to be upset. <laughs> oh, they just needed some all hugs. those little things that happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The minor, yeah. ex right. totally racist right. executions. Right. 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 If only there had been more hugging. Those things. Yeah, totally. So I mean, you know, I, I think that we'll see some a nod in rhetoric, mm -hmm. but nothing respectful in terms of policy. Is the president's State of the Union speech? Do you expect that? it'll factor as a major kind of conversation tonight? Um, I think it gives them a jumping off point. There's mm -hmm. not, you know, they really do love a new, fresh hit on the president. Right. That seems to register pretty well across the board with all of their supporters. And so we are a little less than a month out from the first election, or I should say the first caucus, the Iowa caucus. Um, what are you paying attention to in terms of the horse race? You know, for our listeners who really want to see, are we really going to see uh, a 
Donald Trump take the lead? Should we expect it's a Ted Cruz coming in close behind? Is Marco Rubio suddenly going to emerge from the middle? What what should our listeners be paying attention to there? It's, it's pretty amazing to think that we are here. Like we yeah. arrived. We, we, it's we're 2016. All, we're already tired. Yeah. The election, but, <laughs> I'm exhausted. But, <laughs> we are here. Um, I've actually never thought that Donald Trump would take the nomination. I always felt like he would have a very small but specific and dedicated portion of the electorate. But then the question was where the rest of the party would nominate somebody they thought could actually be fully nominated across the country, but also what would happen to those Trump supporters? Like, do they go to the So you don't think Trump is going to pull it out in Iowa? I actually think he's going to emerge as the winner. So I think Cruz now is going to win Iowa. I think Trump will win New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And the party just does not want him. They do not see him as nationally electable. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. I was in, um, I was in the green room of a conservative television network the other day Mm -hmm. and all of the chatter among former governors was we really don't want Trump to be the nominee yeah um but we kind of have to start accepting that he's going to be so if they're saying it I'm guessing they have their finger closer to the pulse of the party than I do I think what will end up happening is there will be a battle up until the Republican convention because they know that he's not electable nationally and so Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush do they just fade into obscurity does Chris Christie come in as the vice president on a ticket I think there's very little appeal that Christie brings. Um, So I think that Rubio will stay strong. I think the real question is what happens to Jeb Bush? I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a question we all have. So right now we're going to head to break, but I want to just thank you, Emily. Thank you for being our first guest of this amazing show, the Leslie Marshall Show. You were wonderful per usual. Thank you, Michelle. I love being here with you. And I love having you. Thanks so much. We'll go to break and we'll speak to you soon. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your guest host for this lovely afternoon, Michelle Jawando. That's at Michelle Jawando if you want to follow along on Twitter. And my next guest is another dear friend. So I think I shared a little bit earlier that I'm at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. And part of my portfolio here is to talk about the courts. Um, And that means everything from the Supreme Court to our federal courts to our state courts and really explaining why courts matter and the decisions that come down from those courts, why they matter to everyday Americans. Um, I think a lot of people often think about the executive branch. They think about the legislative branch and Congress and what Congress is doing, but they often forget about the importance of the role of the judicial branch in our lives. And so joining me today is one of my amazing one of the smartest, most talented, and most kind um, people out here working in this space, Um, none other than the Constitutional Accountability Center Chief Counsel, Miss Elizabeth Wydra. Elizabeth? 
Yes. Hey, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much. And if you want to follow along, you can follow Elizabeth at, at Elizabeth Wydra at My Constitution. Um, there, her website. You can also find her at the thesecondfounding.org. And so today, Elizabeth, we want to talk 2016 and the Supreme Court and what's going on before the term. So, you know, we did an event here at CAP last week and Essentially, the court is hearing blockbuster cases on everything from access to abortion and contraception, affirmative action and voting rights, unions, and very likely the president's executive actions on immigration, all in the middle of a presidential election. What's going on this year? And can you kind of give us a brief overview of, of what we can expect in 2016? Yeah, this is an absolutely momentous Supreme Court term. And, you know, we've had a couple for the last few years of really important Supreme Court terms. And so I think the public is paying attention, as they should, because the court, as we all have seen in the last few years, whether it's in Citizens United or in upholding the Affordable Care Act or in uh, affirming the right to marriage equality for all Americans, the court decides important issues that relate to Americans' most fundamental values and their daily lives. And sometimes it's for good, um, as we saw in marriage equality, and sometimes it is really uh, to the detriment of our country, like we saw when the court gutted the Voting Rights Act. And everyone should be keeping a close eye on the court this year because there are those cases you mentioned. There's an abortion case that is incredibly important. Um, It will be argued in March. There is a case about unions and the ability of Americans to come together and fight for their rights to work in a safe and productive workplace, um, speak out together against often the big guy and big corporate interests. We've also got cases that involve systemic racism in the criminal justice system. We have cases about the death penalty, about the Affordable Care Act and contraception coverage. And as you said, we'll probably hear tomorrow or at least in the next week or so about whether or not the court will be considering the president's Um, Deferred Action for Parents of American Citizens and Legal Permanent Residence Program, which is incredibly important to millions of people across the country. So, you know, Elizabeth, I recognize I know a lot about the Constitutional Accountability Center, but can you tell our listeners who, who may not be as familiar kind of what you do and why you think your role is so important um, at CAC vis-a-vis um, other institutions like the Federalist Society and others? So what we do is we really focus on making real the progressive promise of the Constitution. And the Constitution is something that belongs to all Americans. But unfortunately, what we've seen is sort of conservatives try to claim this as their own and make arguments in the public sphere that might make you think that the Constitution is really out there to protect big corporate interests, protect property owners, um, not really as this progressive beacon of liberty and equality that it really is. You know, it was it was certainly a brilliant democratic moment when the Constitution was written um, after the American Revolution, but it was deeply flawed. It was not inclusive. It had the stain of slavery, but we, the people throughout the American history, have amended it. We, we got rid of slavery. We instituted the 14th Amendment, which gives birthright citizenship to all who are born here, whether your parents are citizen or stranger, black or white, slave or free, and we have continued to make the document more progressive. And the Constitutional Accountability Center really works in the court with the public, 
um, with our elected leaders to make sure that that progressive promise of the Constitution is a reality for all Americans. And we do that in the Supreme Court. We're involved in all of these big cases making clear to the justices, many of whom, conservative and liberal, claim to be devoted to the text and history of the Constitution. And we try to give them those arguments. They will rule the right way. And when they don't, like in Citizen United or in the uh, case that gutted the Voting Rights Act, we hold them accountable for that by showing that they are not respecting what the U.S. Constitution says they should be doing, which is respecting the rights of all Americans and furthering justice and equality, not making it harder for Americans to vindicate those important rights. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Elizabeth Wydra, and I'm Michelle Jawando filling in for Leslie Marshall today. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 888-653-7543, or you can ask a question on Twitter at Michelle Jawando. Elizabeth, one of the things that I'm so most interested in paying attention to this term is there are a few really big cases that would seem to kind of overturn decades of precedent and established law. You know, one case in particular that I'm watching is the Evanwell case that has a lot to do with representation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that case and, you know, what concerns you? I'll tell you um, after you kind of give a breakdown the thing that I'm most afraid of watching this case. Yeah, so this case is, is a really interesting case that can seem a little arcane, maybe, but it's, it's about, um, so we know this principle of one person, one vote, the idea that everyone's vote um, should be counted the same as anyone else's. And so when states are drawing lines, district lines in which people vote, the question is whether they include in drawing those lines the total population. So that includes everyone, whether you're eligible to vote or not. So, you know, we're talking about children. We're talking about um, legal residents who might not be citizens. That's one option, the total population. That's what states have always used when they're drawing their voting districts. But there is this conservative challenge being brought that wants to change that um, and say instead that, no, states can only draw districts based on voters. And that's, first of all, completely contrary to the 14th Amendment. And we've which, never um, seen anyone ever interpret representation it. that way. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. Everyone is included in the government. Everyone is represented. That's right. Elizabeth, the time is way too short. There's so many things to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us, and you have to come back again. Great to be here, Michelle. You're the best. <laughs> have a good one. And we'll be back, folks, in a sec. Stay tuned. Welcome back. If you're tuning in, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. This isn't Leslie Marshall. My name is Michelle Jawando, and I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall on this Thursday afternoon. If you want to join the conversation, you're welcome to join in by giving us a call at 888 888- 
657-653-7543. Or you can engage on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Michelle with one L, Jawando. So coming back, I want to join, I want to bring someone into this conversation who I like to call a modern day superwoman. She's a sister. She's a dear friend. And her name is Miss Glenda Carr, co-founder of Higher Heights, the only national organization exclusively dedicated to building black women's political power and leadership opportunities. Glenda, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michelle. How are you? I am doing great. Happy Thursday. You almost made it to MLK weekend. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting weekend of uh, commemorating, but also um, envisioning what this country can be and, and, and actually um, taking a time to do service this weekend. Well, I'm I'm excited to participate in some things. You know, for our listeners, I actually live in Silver Spring, Maryland, and um, my husband and I, as well as our family, will be engaging in some activities on um, Monday and Silver Spring. Follow us at on um, Twitter, and we can tell you a little bit more about that. But Glenda, the reason why I wanted to bring you on today is there was this great Washington Post article that came out this week um, about Black women and voting this last. Sunday. Um, And I think maybe some of our listeners may not be aware, but apparently black women voted in record numbers in 2008 and 2012. Um, And quite frankly, four years ago, 74% of eligible black women went to the polls and they voted at a higher rate than any other group. 96% of those who went to the polls voted for President Obama. Now, I think there are some people who are saying that's only that would only happen because President Obama was on the ballot. What do you expect to see in 2016? I think this is an important election uh, for uh, the nation in general. Um, but to kind of debunk some of the the, the myths around um, black women in the electorate. So as you know, Michelle, you know, black, yes, black women you know, voted at higher numbers in 2008 and 2012, uh, but that's not in recent history, um, in the recent story of black women. Um, we out um, vote our male counterparts, and we've been doing that since 1998, uh, and we've been increasing our, um, our, our voting turnout um, for a while now. Uh, higher Heights um, in November re-released our second edition of our Status of Black Women in American Politics, and we spent some time talking about black women in the electorate. Um, you know, measuring black women's political participation outside elected office depends on how we how we define political participation. So black women have been very engaged, uh, kind of behind the scenes uh, around elections, around movement building for decades now. Um, but this is an important year um, for black women. What we've proven, particularly in 2002 and 2008, are that black women voters are the building blocks to any winning coalition at the polls. And as we're 11 months out from um, electing our next president, um, all eyes are on black women. It's part of the reason why Vanessa Williams, who uh, was the reporter that um, wrote the Washington Post article last week, spent some time talking about um, this kind of increasing political um, power that black women have at the voting booths. What makes 2008, 2012 uh, uh, an interesting case study is not only were obviously African American women excited about potentially electing the first, um, you know, um, 
president of color, but also the first African-American male, we also have to realize that uh, the president and his campaign invested in these black women. So not only did we come out and vote um, in record numbers, we organized house parties, we did phone banking, we raised money, we wrote checks. Um, So we've really proven that over the last two cycle presidential cycles, um, not only are we flexing our political power at the voting booth, but we're also harnessing our economic power around elections. So, Glenna, let me ask you, when we think often about the kind of, as we hear the rising American majority, we often think we hear millennials and their role. We hear about young women and we hear about women of color. We hear about communities of color. But how many people, um, whether we're talking about Democrats or Republicans, are really paying attention to the issues? You know, I, I tend to believe that people want to hear candidates who are directly speaking to the issues that concern their lives and their everyday families. Our listeners may not know, but my husband and I, we have three young kids. And for us, we are an intergenerational household. So we're dealing with child care on one hand and an aging parent on the other. And so I wonder, do you feel like enough attention is being paid to the issues that really motivate this group of people? Um. I actually, I mean, so the University of California um, back in, I believe, September, um, definitely in the fall, released um, a report that discussed that black women are um, the most overlooked group in the political process. Um, and obviously that doesn't match kind of our, our, the data. So if we are the building box of a winning coalition for candidates, yet still we're overlooked in the process. And I think some of that is being overlooked in the process is, one, we're underrepresented um, in elected office. But I, I think it also, um, you know, you can um, pull from, from the context of this study is that it's also our voices aren't heard in the political process. And I think, you know, as we move forward, it's imperative that black women, black women's voices are heard and that we can hear our issues um, as these candidates are talking about the issues. Yes, we'd like, I think any constituency group wants candidates to specifically talk about their issues. Um, and even if we don't hear, well, black women, you know, make 64 cents every dollar spent on um, every $64, um, earned cents. from every, um, dollar a white man earns, that if a candidate doesn't say that, we, we can still hear that equal pay is very important. So I think issues are very important to, um, voters across the board, but particularly for black women, as these candidates are looking to vie for our votes, that we want to ensure that our voices are heard and our issues are being addressed. Um, Does it frustrate you that at some level this is only a one-sided conversation? Because it's really about um, talking just about the differences between Democrats. Like, do we have an expectation that the Donald Trumps and the Ted Cruz's of the world, the only candidate that I've really seen make any type of outreach has been um, Rand Paul, and he's not even on the main stage at the GOP debate uh, this evening. You know, how, how does that factor into the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think wholeheartedly, you know, if we are really, I mean, if you go back to, um, you know, President Obama's um, last state of the um, union speech and his last kind of five minutes talking about imagine what um, the state of this union can be, what, what does democracy really, really mean for our country, that, you know, we are living in such a politically polarized um, time in our country that we ought to, on both sides of the aisle, both <laughs> the different fractions within both sides of the aisle, ought to really 
um, figure out how we ought to be talking to everyone. Not every, yes, black women are, are the backbone of the Democratic Party, but there are black women that are registered Republicans, that are independents, that aren't registered for any party. That, I, you know, a real true democracy is that we would want all of our elected leaders, particularly our national leaders, to be talking about the full union and what we need to do to have a, the, you know, a strong state of our union. So, you know, Higher Heights, we're very committed to ensuring that we find meaningful ways for black women to be engaged in the political process. So we are um, conducting an online poll, uh, uh, first in a series of online polls, and what we're asking um, black women from across the country is to tell us what you want to hear um, your candidates to talk about. And so we encourage your listeners to go on to our website, higherheightsforamerica.org, answer that question, and then we're going to compile this, um, the result, results of this poll and craft an open letter to every um, candidate on both sides of the aisle, um, um, uh, open candidate saying this is what black women across the country are saying are the issues that we are most concerned with and want to hear from you as you look to seek for our, our, our vote um, in November. Glenda, you are amazing as always. Thank you again. Happy early Founders Day, my sister and sorority sister. Uh, we're going to head out to break. Thank you so much, Glenda. Thank you. Have a good day. And stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall Show. This is your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. Join us in the conversation. If you want to follow along on Twitter, you can follow us at, at Michelle Jawando or you can call us at 888 888- Six five three seven five four three, and I'll be with you until the six p.m. hour tonight, and would love to hear from you. Um, joining us now to discuss millennials and voting is none other than Sarah Adello from Rock the Vote. Sarah, are you with us? I am with you. Hello from Iowa. Oh wow! Uh oh, I can only guess. Do you happen to be there for the Iowa? Um, caucuses or preparing and doing some education why are you in iowa i am in iowa for an awesome event that we are doing with usa today uh we are doing a series of panels called one nation and today we have a panel talking about clean energy um in downtown des moines so we're excited we're going to have a live performance by the band the maytags we're going to have um a great panel discussion, and then, of course, voter registration. Now, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar, what is exactly a millennial? We hear a lot of, like, interesting comments. Millennials do this. Millennials do that. What is a millennial? So a millennial is a name for, this, like, our current generation of young people. There's a lot of definitions out there in terms of, you know, how old are they and when they were, when were they born. Um, but we typically say that millennials were born between 1980 and 2000. 
So we are looking at the youngest voters right now, as well as as a, a few years of folks who can't vote yet, but should be able to in the next couple of years. So I also heard that millennials, the the oldest millennial is probably around 35 and Mm -hmm. never had the occasion to ever vote for Clinton. Um, Is that right? Uh, Yeah, that that would be the case. So, you know, it's interesting. And the reason I raise that is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about who um, the Clintons are. But for most people, they never were or for millennials, they were never around during the Clinton years. So in some ways, uh, Secretary Clinton is a new candidate to them in terms of her message and what she's talking about. Is that about right based on some of the young people you're speaking with? I mean, I think, you know, for our older millennials, uh, they certainly were around and voting um, in the primaries for 2008, um, for for Secretary Clinton at least. Um, but, you know, we're not able to vote for uh, Bill Clinton. He was not on a ballot for for them. And so, you know, the, the relationship with young people in the Clintons, and in some cases, you know, they, they know Secretary Clinton as a senator. They'll know her as Secretary of State. Um, but aside from that, you know, it might be little pieces of what you heard growing up if you were paying attention to the news like that. Um, but other than that, in some ways, she is uh, she is a, a newer candidate to folks, even though the name has certainly been around for a very long time. Now, Sarah, I expected you to say that you were actually going to be in South Carolina because of the GOP debate um, this evening. Are, are you expecting to hear kind of about what millennials are experiencing, issues around student loan debt and, um, uh, and the new kind of gig economy? Are you expecting to hear some of that come out tonight? I certainly hope so. Um, you know, the, the millennial generation is our country's largest generation. Um, we're a massive share of the electorate, and then really young people uh, are excited to turn out to the, to the polls. We actually just did a really great survey uh, with USA Today that was released on Monday uh, talking about some of the issues that are most important for the millennial generation. And so Can you I tell us a little bit about the poll? Absolutely. So this is a poll that we're going to be doing um, four times uh, leading up to the election. And and the first one, we asked uh, basic questions about, you know, likelihood to vote and and, um, what young people think about voting. But also, uh, what are some of the issues that are really important to the millennial generation? And I think, you know, it's in many cases not different from what you see uh, from older generations. Number one is uh, the economy. Uh, which, of course, you know, young people face incredibly high unemployment rates, uh, higher rates than we've seen for previous generations of the same age. So it's no surprise that the economy comes up. Um, the second most important issue is education. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, student loan debt, debt is a massive issue for this generation. Um, the third issue that came up was foreign policy, followed by health care and gun laws and gun safety. So uh, I certainly hope that those issues come up in, in South Carolina. And uh, I know I'll be uh, tuning in after it happens to see how it went. So what do you think is the biggest misconceptions about millennials and voting? One of the things that I read most recently is for the first time ever, millennials and baby boomers match each other in the voting eligible population, but the political power still hasn't quite met their numbers yet for millennials. Do you think that those kind of stories that often come out about millennials not really engaging in the political process are true? Is there some truth to that? Well, I think, you know, when we think about young people, they, there are certainly folks who have never been able to vote yet. So it's really important for us to reach out to them and ensure that they're getting registered. 
Um, and, and, you know, when you ask young people about their thoughts on voting, one of the things that came out of our survey was about 75% thought uh, that voting is a way to impact the issues that they care about. And so, you know, for us, it's so important to make sure, and it provides an opportunity for candidates to really start talking about these issues that I mentioned before, like education and the economy, um, to make sure that they're talking about the things that young people are living and surviving through and experiencing every single day. Um, and so for us, you know, I, there is a lot of, um, you know, talk in the media about how young people don't care about things, but if we look at, you know, what are some of the biggest uh, struggles that are happening right now with young people, uh, you look at who are leading some of the fights on the ground, whether it's you know the Black Lives Matter movement, whether you're looking at um, Dreamers, whether uh, you're looking at a lot of what's happening around gun violence prevention and, and clean energy. Uh, young people are leading these fights. And so, you know, for those who think that they're not engaged, that kind of, friends like, they're there. They're absolutely there. Um, and and it's and, and uh, ready to be engaged just about our, our candidates and campaigns and are, are they going to reach out to them or not. Got it. Now, Sarah, before we get ready to let you go, what is the thing that you would want every candidate and everyone to know about who millennials are and what they really want for their democracy? So I think what I would uh, want candidates to know is that, one, young people are ready to be engaged. And, and it's really important for candidates to you know look at their campaigns and, and look at how they're doing outreach and to intentionally reach out to young people. Two, I think it's really important to note that this is a very diverse generation. We're talking about 40%, over 40% that are young people of color. Um, and even while there are certainly similarities across the generation in terms of what's important to them, whether we're looking like background checks is something that ranked very high, clean energy is something that ranked very high uh, across the generation, there are also some differences. So, you know, with millennials of color, um, they there were other issue areas that popped up a little bit higher than the, the generation writ large, um, whereas they prioritize a little bit more civil rights um, than the generation writ large. So one is that Young people are here. They're ready to be engaged, um, and so go talk to them. But two, also recognize there's a lot of diversity there, um, but also a ton of opportunity to to really make sure this incredible generation is turning out in the polls. Thank you, Sarah. We so want to continue to have you back, and I'm really excited about what this survey is going to say. And actually, when when should we expect, before I let you go, when should we expect to see some of the results from the survey? So uh, there is a great article that uh, USA Today put out on Monday afternoon, um, and so that I would encourage folks to go to check out USA Today and, and that piece. Um, it was also uh, on the front page of the paper on Tuesday morning, um, and these are going to be quarterly surveys, so uh, we will have a lot more to come in a couple months uh, where we'll deep dive in other issues uh, that, that uh, we haven't hit on yet. And if people want to stay engaged and follow you, what should they do? Um, they should come to rockthevote.com and be sure to sign up for our email list. We have lots of opportunities for people to volunteer and attend our events. Um, and you can follow us online as well on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, we are there. Thank you so much, Sarah Adello from Rock the Vote. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Leslie Marshall Show. And if you're interested in joining the conversation, you can call in at 888-653-7543. You can ask questions on Twitter. You can find me at at Michelle Jawando. That's Michelle with one L and Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. We want to hear from you. So take some time. Give us a call. Thanks so much, and we'll be back soon.
Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome back. If you are tuning in to the Leslie Marshall Show, you may have heard my voice before, but if not, this is Michelle Jawando filling in as a guest host this afternoon on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-653-7543, or you can follow and engage on Twitter with us at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, one L Jawando J A W A N D O would love to hear from you. So this afternoon we've been talking about a little bit about everything, and a lot had to do with politics. And you know, I shared for our listeners, um, I am the vice president of legal progress here at the Center for American Progress, which is the kind of preeminent progressive think tank in Washington D.C. But we've been talking a lot about politics, and we talked a little bit about the Supreme Court and millennials and women of color and black women in voting. And now I'm going to switch topics just a little bit. Uh, my next guest probably can't tell us too much about uh, black women in voting, but he can tell us quite probably a not. bit about <laughs> public lands, and I'm really excited to have him join us. So joining in studio is none other than my colleague, Matt Lee Ashley, who's the former deputy chief of staff at the Department of Interior and the director of our public lands program here at the Center for American Progress. Thanks for joining, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show, Michelle. It's great to see you. Great to see you. So, Matt, can you just tell us a little bit about kind of your role at CAP? I will tell you, I didn't even know CAP had a public lands program um, until indeed. I came here. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what your kind of day-to-day is like. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we work on public lands issues. And for folks out there, public lands are national forests, national wildlife refuges, national parks, national monuments, uh, Bureau of Land Management public lands. Uh, they cover a large part of the country. Uh, pretty much everybody listening has probably been to public lands at some point in the last year for a hike or a walk or fishing or hunting or, or to go visit um, a cultural site. Uh, so they touch all of us in some way. Uh, so we work on uh, trying to protect public lands for future generations, but also ensure that they're managed appropriately. And so that means striking the right balance between energy development, extractive industries, renewable energy, uh, and on the other side, conservation. Um, and there's a lot happening on public lands on any given day. As we <laughs> can see in Oregon right now, there's a, a heated debate out there about uh, who rightly uh, public lands should belong to. Um, and uh, on our side of the debate, we very much think public lands should stay public. It's a, a, a proud American tradition that we all have equal access to public lands, that we can all go recreate outdoors. And uh, right now we're seeing from the far right a big push to privatize and sell off public lands. And that's troubling. It's, it's a debate we need to have, and we need to win that debate. And it's actually <clears throat> a huge economic driver. If, if I recall, your department put out an 
interesting report about both the sporting and the outdoor industry and kind of the nexus between kind of boosting our kind of economic overall GDP, right? That's absolutely right. And uh, we often forget that just going outdoors, uh, mm -hmm. recreating with your family, uh, tourism and travel, it's a huge part of the American economy right now. About $700 billion in economic benefits come from that. And to sustain that economy, we need places to go visit. It mm -hmm. means we have to be good stewards of the land and the water and our wildlife. Uh, and that is why you see businesses like REI and Patagonia uh, standing up for public lands and fighting to protect open spaces because they know that natural infrastructure is critical to their bottom line. Um, and, you know, the, it, uh, it's a growing political force in this country, I think. People who work in the outdoor recreation industry and also people who are using public lands are speaking out more. Mm -hmm. uh, you're hearing them some on this debate in Oregon. Uh, and I think politicians, uh, if they're not listening now, will we'll be listening more and more in the years to come. So I have a lot of really fond memories um, every year. So I'm from New York for our listeners. And every now and then I'm going to say something like car or door, and then you'll <laughs> hear it come out. But uh, growing up in New York, but going away during July 4th weekends, headed to upstate New York or somewhere in the Poconos, and we would camp out for the weekends. And we would do it with a whole group of families, and it would be about 10 families, and we'd pitch our tent. And I was so proud because when the Girl Scouts actually went, I got my tent badge faster than everybody else <laughs> because I was like this tent expert. So um, I do think it's really important. And now I'm excited because I have a family of my own, and my husband and I are looking forward to taking our first trip um, out uh, camping with our girls. And, you know, it is a part of a kind of a very American tradition Absolutely. that you often don't hear about. And you don't hear about communities of color doing it, but That's we very much right. engage in our public lands. Yeah, and I think it's... Uh we are. We just started the centennial year of the National Park System. It was uh, the National Park Service uh, was created in, in 1916. So this year you'll see a lot of celebrations of parks and public lands. Uh, and as part of that, I think there will be a call for everybody to get outdoors and park. There's uh, fourth graders. Every fourth grader in America can get into parks free this year, which is a nice little incentive okay. for young people. No and their fourth families. graders yet. Yeah, so, yeah we, we all need to work on that. <laughs> you know, if you have a, a kid in second grade, you need to try to accelerate them yeah. and get them into fourth grade by the end of the year. Um, but it also means that we need to think carefully about the next century of conservation in our parks and public lands. And that means building a park system that reflects the diversity of this country. Um, if you look out across the units that are in the park system right now, uh, they don't do a, a very good job overall of representing underrepresented communities and, and telling the stories of uh, Latinos in this country, Asian Americans, uh, African Americans, LGBT Americans. In fact, there's not a single monument in this country or park that is primarily focused on LGBT Americans. And sure. this president has actually done a tremendous job of changing that. You see the, the executive actions President Obama has taken to protect public lands and to designate national monuments. Uh, many of them have been focused on uh, protecting a place that helps, tells a, helps tell a story of an underrepresented community, mm -hmm. from Fort Monroe National Monument down in Virginia to Cesar Chavez National Monument out in California. Uh, so that has been a priority this administration, it needs to be the priority of the next administration. It's also true that the Congress has been lagging in, in this department. There mm -hmm. needs to be more conversation on the Hill about how to uh, engage a broader audience in mm -hmm. the parks and the outdoors, and also to think very carefully about the, the cultural and historic sites and landscapes in this country that, that matter to everybody. Uh, and th I think that's a, the fundamental challenge of this centennial year and, and a conversation we need to have. So if you are just tuning in, this is Michelle Jawad. 
Rwando filling in as a guest host on the Leslie Marshall Show. Joining me in studio is Matt Lee Ashley, former Deputy Chief of Staff at the Department of Interior and Director of the Public Lands Program here at the Center for American Progress. If you want to join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-653-7543 or you can join in on Twitter, uh, either at the Leslie Marshall Show or at Michelle Jawando. So, Matt, I'm excited because we're going to have you in studio for uh, two segments. So I quickly want to start the conversation. We're definitely going to have to come back to it. But start the conversation talking about what is going on in Oregon. Uh, For our listeners, uh, you may recall that right now we have a standoff happening in armed takeover at the Oregon National Wild Refuge. What in the world, Matt? Tell me what's going what on. What in the world is going on <laughs> out there? What in the world? <laughs> yeah, that's right. If, if you can't laugh about it, you'll cry yeah, because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's absurd. Uh, the people out there who are doing this are um, pursuing ideas that are completely outside of the mainstream. Uh, the local community doesn't support them. The sheriff wants them out of the county. Um, it is laughable, but it's also fundamentally dangerous, and that's mm-hmm. why uh, it needs to be taken very seriously. Um, for those of you who, who haven't been uh, uh, following any news in the last uh, 13 days, it would be hard to miss this story because it is so crazy. But on, on January 2nd, uh, it seems like a couple dozen gunmen uh, went out to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, and uh, there were not uh, wildlife refuge employees there at the time because it was the weekend, but they took it over. And and they have uh, kept everybody else out, and they have pledged to stay there and keep their armed occupation of the refuge until uh, uh, two people who are in prison are released. As it turns out, these two people don't even want their help either. Uh, and the second thing that they want is for the U.S. government to transfer uh, America's public lands back to and they call it back to local control and state control. The fact is, those are public lands that have uh, that were never uh, in their hands before. These are, these are property of all of us. Uh, tribal nations nearby are, are very unhappy with this because uh, they uh, see the, the wildlife refuge there is, is critical to helping protect uh, landscape that's important to them and also cultural and archaeological resources uh, nearby. So it is an outrage and it is uh, something that, that needs to end. Uh, the people uh, involved need to be brought to justice. So Matt, we're going to bring you back after break, but for now we're going to go to break. If you are tuning in, you're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Joining us, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando. If you want to join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-653-7543 or follow the conversation on social media at Michelle Jawando. In studio, I am lucky enough to be joined by one of my colleagues, Matt Lee Ashley, who's the director of the Public Lands Program and former deputy chief of staff at the Department of Interior.
interior. So Matt was just giving us a little bit of a breakdown about what was happening out in Oregon. What I find so fascinating, and I know we have a caller who's waiting, so Brian, we're going to come to you, so just hold on. Um, But what I find so fascinating about the story is the local community has made very clear they don't want these armed militia there, um, and they want them to go home. Schools were closed. The local law enforcement said, we want you out of here. Um, So why do they feel like if the community is saying, we don't want you, why do they think they have the right to still be there? What's happening right now out in Oregon, the people who are out there, have uh, some of them have been planning this for months. They're trying to make a statement. They're trying to get uh, PR. They're trying to stand in front of cameras. Uh, they are, uh, many of them, affiliated with uh, very uh, extremist anti-government groups. Uh, they claim to speak for uh, ranchers and uh, Western citizens, but the, the polling is very clear in the West that people value public lands. There are disagreements over how those lands should be managed, but ultimately people do think that uh, public access to public lands, the ability for uh, hunters and anglers to get outdoors, uh, that that access should be preserved. Uh, so these people really stand outside the mainstream. Um, they This is a PR opportunity for them, uh, and when you see groups like the 3% centers coming in from Idaho. These are groups that have uh, a very radical and violent connections, and it's it's troubling. And it's right that the FBI be monitoring the situation um, and and tracking who is coming in and going out. So it is, it, you know, we have to remember it is it is dangerous. These yeah. people have made threats. Uh, many of them are on social media, uh, threatening public uh, employees. People being uh, followed home uh, and, and 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 surveilled by militia members. It's uh, a bad situation. And I think you speak to a double standard. And I know we have a, a another caller who just joined us, Michael from the Bronx, who wants to talk a little bit about that double standard. But before I go to Michael, so hold on, I'm going to go to Brian out in Denver, Colorado. Brian, you're on with Michelle and Matt. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I got about here in Denver now, but I grew up on a farm ranch in Colorado, which, and our neighbor happened to be the um, Department of Fish and Wildlife. And they were probably the worst possible neighbor and, and uh, steward of their land as you could possibly imagine. They, I don't know if you're, I hope your guest knows what Canadian thistles were. They let their uh, land get overrun with Canadian thistles, and we had to constantly fight uh, the infestation of that. They did not take care of the land. I think what people, a lot of times, typical north, you know, east or the coast, east and west coast liberals, when they hear of public lands, you know, they have visions of Rocky Mountain National Park and Yosemite and Yellowstone. You know, the fact of the matter is hundreds of thousands of just acres of regular land, which could easily be in private hands, you know, to something like two-thirds of the state of Nevada. You know, this is not, you know, I know for us that grew up in the West and know a lot about these things, you know, we sort of viewed the way that these, quote, public lands are viewed as a sort of a, a bunch of upper-middle-class white liberals love the idea that there's this pristine something out there that 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 they can control and they they view people in the you know at least the 
people in the West who made a living. Matt, let, let me let you get in there and um, just respond to Brian's question, because I think he does raise yeah, a question yeah, about the stewarders, stewardship of the lands. And, and that's a, a good debate to be having, right? I mean, the, one of the benefits of having public lands is there are uh, public meetings and democratic processes through which people can speak up and say, you know, you have invasive species on your land, we need to be spending more time on it. Nobody is arguing that uh, national forests and BLM lands and even national parks are managed perfectly. There are problems out there. There are real challenges. There are big wildfire threats. There are invasive species. <clears throat> I think the, the first question is, should those lands be transferred to state and private control? And and if you look at state lands in the West, uh, state-owned lands, the, the laws that guide the management of those state trust lands are uh, guided toward maximizing revenue. So you see a huge amount of timber extraction and oil and gas. And, and if that is, is the priority, they're doing that. But the, the values that guide a lot of other public lands is trying to find a balance and having a, a, a debate about what the right balance is. Uh, and the other thing is privatizing public lands. One of the consequences of that is the loss of access. And Lots of people in the West. Uh, I'm from Colorado. I hiked and you know and uh, around Pikes Peak and spent a lot of time in the outdoors there. And one of the great things about growing up in Colorado Springs is, you know, you, they're open spaces right out your back door. And you start privatizing public lands, selling them off. Uh, it does mean diminished access for the public because there's no obligation for private landowners to to keep that trail open, to keep that stream open. That's a great point. Let me go to Michael, who's been patiently waiting. Michael from the Bronx, are you still on? I'm right here. How are you? Thanks so much for calling in. and Thanks so much for taking my call. The thing that upsets me, all right, this issue might be about uh, reserved land and government property, but when it comes to protesting, there's a right way and a wrong way. There's a legal way and an illegal way. And what I've seen happening lately is a major double standard, especially when it comes to Oregon, these guys, first off, I wish the media would stop calling them militia because they're not. All right? These guys are armed. They're not trained by any government or any um, qualified um And, Michael, you are so right, and I'm running out of time. So let me get Matt to just answer that quickly. But I I feel you on the double standard. And, Matt, we have about 30 seconds. (laughs) I I think you're absolutely right. There's a right way and a wrong way to protest. And and showing up with your guns at a National Wildlife Refuge and and taking over a federal building and federal property is absolutely the wrong way to do it. People uh, need to be held accountable and they need to end up in prison. Um, I I think, you know, it does look like there's a double standard here because, uh, you know, not, uh, not every other protest movement in this country is done even the right way and is mm-hmm. necessarily treated this way. Uh, and so that's not to say that, that you want to see a, a, an armed intervention immediately by law enforcement authorities. That's not always the best thing to do, but you do want to see consistency uh, in the application of the law. Yeah. Well, Matt, you have been an amazing guest. There's so much to say here. I really appreciate both Michael and Brian for calling in today. Sorry we couldn't keep you on longer. You know, if, if people want to still continue to pay attention to this, what should they do? Uh, well, the conversation's all over social media. Uh, we have a lot of content up on uh, climate progress and think progress tracking this. Um, uh, one key thing you can do today, if you like public lands, is to go buy a duck stamp, believe okay. it or not. Yeah, we'll buy a duck stamp. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, we'll head to break. And we'll be back in a few minutes. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host, Michelle Jawando. Thanks so much.
afternoon and welcome back. If you're just tuning in, this is Michelle Jawando serving as a guest host on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're so happy you're joining us this afternoon. And if you want to join the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, find me at Michelle Jawando, Michelle with one L. Or you can give us a call, 888 888- Six five three seven five four three. I'm super excited about this next segment because I am joined by um, two of my colleagues. I, I think I shared with our listeners who uh, tuned in in the first hour. So I serve as vice president of our legal progress shop here at the Center for American Progress. It's a progressive uh, think tank in Washington, D.C., but CAT really works on a host of issues. Um, and one of those things that they've been building an amazing kind of record of leadership has been on guns and crime. Um, and also at CAP, there is a separate kind of news um, uh, organization that is a little bit affiliated with CAP, Think Progress. And so joining me in studio right now is Tim Daly, who is the campaign director for Grun- Guns and Crime Policy at the Center for American Progress, and none other than Igor Voski, who is the contributing editor for Think Progress. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you for being here. And for those who are also tuning in, this is my birthday. So there are cookies. Should we sing? Should we sing? So if you would like to sing, only if you can do it well, you are welcome (laughs) to do so. Um, And also all people who are calling in, only pro-cookie callers, uh, because I I am having a cookie cake for my birthday this year. So uh, let's get right down to, to business. So, you know, recently the president announced a series of executive actions on guns. Um, And pretty soon after, we saw politicians, um, I would say mostly conservative politicians, saying how unconstitutional these actions were. Well, they actually are exactly constitutional. And he didn't do anything that they can do. Um, But it was quite interesting to see some of the kind of double standards of some of the actions. And Igor, I know you were pretty active in basically Twitter shaming uh, a bunch of these politicians. Can you tell us first, Tim, what these executive actions were? And then, Igor, how you got engaged into this fight? Sure. Uh, And again, thank you for having us on. Um, You know, so last week the president announced a series of executive actions, uh, and they fit into four buckets, uh, quite honestly. And one was uh, talking about the issue of background checks, how he was going to enforce the current laws on the books and ensuring that various prohibiting records, i.e. if you're a felon, for example, or you have a restraining order against you, how those records are going to get into the background check system. Um, And then he also clarified um, how the ATF will uh, regulate uh, gun dealers in determining who's a gun dealer and who is not. And believe it or not, there has been some ambiguity in that uh, question in the past. Uh, The president also said that uh, they're going to improve the operation and effectiveness of the background check system. Um, The background check system actually exists in this office building in West Virginia, and because of various things, um, whether that be lack of funding or lack of oversight, the background checks operations themselves have literally been stuck in the ice age. Um, So uh, he announced a series of actions to improve and reform uh, the electronic records that are there. 
the president also said he's going to encourage uh, new innovation, how we're going to do things in smart tech and create new gun technologies that will make our communities safer. And then the president also said he's going to do something in the mental health space and dedicating upwards of $500 million in new spending to ensure that our communities have better uh, treatment for mental mental illness. That's awesome. And so um, I know we have on the line Reggie from Georgia. So stay tuned. We're going to turn to you in a second, Reggie. But I want to bring Igor into this conversation because the president talked about what he was doing. But you talked a lot about the inaction of a lot of people in Congress who weren't doing anything because of maybe some. $12.5 million in contributions, maybe? Just a lot maybe. of money from the NRA, absolutely. <laughs> and the amazing part, Michelle, is they weren't just condemning these actions once they came out. They were condemning them before they even knew what they were. Because mm-hmm. the details don't really matter. The criticism is always the same. I mean, Obama can just say the word guns and you'd have a flurry of tweets claiming mm-hmm. that he's undermining the Second Amendment. And if you tweet these lawmakers and you ask them, well, how how is this undermining the Second Amendment? Or even you read their statements and you try to figure out how is expanding background checks or hiring more inspectors to, so that the, the system actually goes by quicker in the background background check process. How does that violate the Second Amendment? There's no answer because it really doesn't matter. The NRA has been able to to hype the rhetoric to such a level that all you have to do is say that anything he does violates the Second Amendment, and that's enough. That's enough for the NRA members to, uh, you know, to kind of be scared and to uh, donate more to the NRA. And that's also enough for gun manufacturers because then those same people run out and get guns. And that's why you have a situation where every time the president talks about guns, gun sales spike. Massive gun spike. So let me turn and bring you in. Reggie from Georgia, I think you're on the line and actually has made a really good point. But I'm going to let you do it. Reggie? Yes, happy Thursday to you, yourself, Michelle, and your two guests, too. Thank you so much. And you, and you guys were just mentioning about uh, smart, smart weapons. Well, as you know, very well know, the NRA doesn't like, doesn't want to uh, use the word smart weapons because they don't like smart weapons and they won't even support people using smart weapons. And you know they're not going to tolerate people having smart weapons. To them, it, there is no, it's no replacement for re- actual weapons. And you have radio talk show hosts. Uh, certain radical right-wing conservative radio talk show hosts, like I said, just Dana Lowe saying that the word assault weapons is a unicorn-like is a unicorn unicorn-like term. It, it's non-existent, and she doesn't like smart weapons either. You know, smart guns. No, you you gun. you bring up act- a great point, Reggie, and you know, Matt. Um, well, Tim, let me just turn back to you on this point because one of the actions the president announced is basically trying to incentivize the Department of Defense and Homeland Security to take the lead on how can we bring some innovation? We are like the greatest country on earth, but we're not innovating in the place of smart weapons and fingerprinting on your gun so only you can unlock it. And so now he's saying, well, I'm going to have to do something because we haven't done anything for years because. Right. 
does. Well, the reason why we haven't done anything is because the NRA has blocked uh, the free market from even looking into and exploring and researching and developing these technologies. So the administration, the president said, all right, fine. We are one of the biggest consumers of these products. Uh, we have significant purchasing power. Our market share is such that, you know, we can demand better. So why don't we use the market share and the, and the buying power that we have from the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security, which is buying these fire, firearms, demand that some of this research and development happens. Um, and in the process, perhaps we procure it ourselves. So we can provide that proof of concept to show that the NRA and others, these aren't the terrible weapons you have proclaimed them to be for the last 20 years, um, and then allow them to get into the marketplace. So, Igor, why have they set up the president as just this, like, gun hating, I'm coming for you and all your bullets kind of guy when he's actually been like the exact opposite of that. Well, I think, you know, for the two reasons I outlined, it's because it boosts their user fees and keeps the NRA afloat and because it, it lines the pockets of gun manufacturers who donate to the NRA, who hold all kinds of raffles with their products that then go into the NRA coffers. So it's a very symbiotic relationship that the gun industry and uh, the NRA has. It calls itself the, the longest serving uh, civil rights groups in America, but really it has become at least in the last 10, 20 years, uh, kind of a lobby for the for the gun manufacturers themselves. But isn't there a huge distinction? And actually, I think I'm, oh, we've got a few more minutes, but isn't there a major distinction between the kind of Washington office of the NRA and actually the NRA members themselves? Because I've seen polls where NRA members who are like, listen, I, I support background checks. Like, I had to go through one. Why can't you? So isn't there like this kind of juxtaposition between the like political side versus the actual gun owners themselves? It's really stunning. You ask gun owners, you ask NRA members, do you support expanding background checks and the numbers are overwhelming. You know, something in the 80 plus percent of NRA members of gun owners support this. The leadership doesn't uh, and the gun manufacturers don't. And I guess part of the fear on, on their end is it creates in their minds a slippery slope. You start with background checks. What are you going to end up with? And, you know, from a purely business perspective, it narrows the market for who is eligible to buy those weapons. But certainly the crux of the matter here is holding a very hard line and ensuring that absolutely nothing is done at all about this. Nothing even as sensible as what Tim described in the president's orders. And and the, the Igor's numbers that he's talking about, these polling numbers, we did a poll in November that asked this. And, and, and Tim, I, when as soon as we come back from break, I want you to tell me all about I, that I'm poll. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, don't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, okay, sit right there. I am. <laughs> don't move. Absolutely. All right, for all listeners, you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Michelle Jawando filling in as your guest host. We'll be right back in a bit. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. is the Leslie Marshall Show, and I am your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. You can stay tuned and join us in the conversation. Give us a call, 
or follow along with us on Twitter. I'm at Michelle Jawando. In studio, I am super excited that I'm joined by two of my uh, super talented colleagues, Tim Daly, Campaign Director for Guns and Crime Policy at the Center for American Progress, and Igor Volsky, who is the contributing editor to Think Progress. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Tim, right before we went to break, you started to tell us a little bit about a poll. Yeah, you know, and Igor was talking about these numbers with respect to background checks. And, you know, the American public is overwhelmingly in support of them, but so are gun owners, as Igor was talking about. And we did a poll that wanted to test some of these questions of gun owners back in November as the president was teeing up some of these executive actions. And, you know, we went a step further. We asked them to NRA members and to gun owners, like, what do you think about the NRA? And it was shocking to your point of how the NRA is losing its way. You know, 60% of gun owners were saying, yeah, the NRA has lost its way. It's been taken over by lobbyists and no longer represents the interests that it used to. And even a third of the NRA members themselves said the same thing. So, you know, that would be like a third of OFA, the, you know, Organizing for America arm of the Obama campaign, saying, you know what, the president has lost its way. That would be (laughs) stunning to people. Uh, And, of course, I think the president would try to figure out why. But the NRA has said, we don't care. We have an agenda in mind, and that's what we're going to pursue. So, Igor, what was so, for those who may not be familiar, and you should share a little bit, Igor, um, you kind of went viral on folks for a bit because you were pointing out really some naked hypocrisy um, of members of Congress, and both Tim and I are old Hill staffers, so we appreciated it. Um, but what's so interesting is I think people both resonated with what you were doing because they feel like their politics are taken over by special interests, but it's sometimes really abstract, so you can't point to it. And you were saying, no, 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 here it is, and this is what's happening. Tell folks what happened. Well, in the aftermath of the San Bernardino shooting, a lot of lawmakers were tweeting their thoughts and prayers to the families, to the first responders, and it really struck me that in the aftermath of one of these tragedies, we all follow a script. We as reporters, report on in a certain way, follow certain steps. There's a day one story, day two story. We know exactly what to do. But so do the lawmakers, particularly those who've had every chance to support um, measures that would reduce gun violence, who had a chance to expand background checks in the aftermath of Newtown, Connecticut, and didn't. And it really struck me that they've been tweeting their thoughts and prayers for years and have been refusing to do anything about it. And so I went through all of the lawmakers kind of one by one, and I checked to see if they had voted for those measures in the aftermath of Newtown. And if they voted against the background check bill, I would simply tweet, why don't you do something more than just think and pray? Why don't you actually take action to reduce gun violence? Then eventually I got some of the numbers in terms of how much they had taken in from the NRA and started tweeting those out. And I think seeing that stark contrast between how much money they received and the fact that all they can do is is think and pray, I think really communicated this idea that it's the NRA that's paying them to think and pray about gun violence and to not actually do anything about it. Well, what I found really obnoxious is that I don't even think they actually are thinking or praying And if you were watching me in studio, I'm air quoting. Um, When I was in the Senate, and for those uh, who are just joining us, I shared earlier, I was former uh, chief counsel to one of the senators and was on the floor 
the night we were trying to pass proactive legislation in the wake of Newtown. And Tim, I'm sure you had similar experiences. But what was so frustrating is members who said this was such a tragedy, having an opportunity to do something and not doing it. And then just walking off the Senate floor as if it was just a vote like any other vote. And Tim, you know, you worked with lawmakers. Why do you find that it was so frustrating for so long on Capitol Hill to move anything. And I mean, you saw the president's visible frustration with this after um, the most recent incident and as he announced his executive actions. But, you know, from your vantage point as a staffer, how did you feel this issue really, uh, what happened on your side of the aisle? Yeah, I mean, and we were technically on the same side of the aisle. Right, right, I, I definitely, 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 definitely. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think part of the problem is is that you know the the gun lobby that Igor was just talking about has for so long built up this mystique that if you were to go against them, that they would retaliate against you. And you know, I think so many of us on Capitol Hill felt like, okay. Yes, we have felt that they would retaliate, but this was different, that the level of violence here, the unbelievable nature, the president said himself, the one and only time he has ever seen Secret Service uh, cry, you know, in the open, um, that this was different. And so we all presumed that this gun lobby retaliation or the fear of retaliation w- was not going to apply here. Mm-hmm. And that's why we were just simply stunned when those people who have received the support of the NRA or were fearful of the NRA then continued to vote the way that they did and defeated things like background checks. And we, we also thought that the NRA's response in the aftermath of Newtown, saying that all you need is to arm all school security guards everywhere, more guns, more guns, was going to be laughed out of the room. I remember that press conference, Wayne LaPierre, who heads that uh, gun lobby, when he uh, kind of very angrily went against the media and went went against anyone who talked about gun safety in these very kind of emotional way. I remember thinking at the time, well, here they really overstepped. Let me me bring in one anecdote on that, actually. And then Cliff from Virginia, I'm coming to you in one second. You pulled back the curtain on what it was like to be a congressional staff person. Let me pull back one other curtain on all of this. And this kind of goes into your, Mm -hmm. we're automated, like to plan on these things. I used to be a communications director on the Hill for several years. And, you know, we always have our statements pre-planned. We write them out for the bosses. It's so we can turn them out. This was the one time in the history of my working in the Hill where we had our statement all planned. Wayne LaPierre came out and gave that press conference, and we had to rip it up. We were simply stunned. We thought there was no way possible that we could be where <laughs> that we he are. could say what he would say. Cliff from Virginia, come on in. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, first of all, I want to applaud the president for taking some type of action to mitigate this epidemic of gun violence that is ravaging our nation. It's really mind-boggling to me how we have leaders on Capitol Hill who are just are in utter paralysis to do anything that could potentially save lives. I mean, if, if, the, if a comprehensive background check saves one American's life from gun violence, just one American, it's worth it. That's right. So, you know, this is a crisis because essentially what has happened in this country you know, if you tie the gun violence to some of the rhetoric that we're hearing from some people, you know, throughout the country, you know, basically the national security of the country is threatened. I mean, whether it's in Aurora at a movie theater or Newtown at an elementary school or Seat Temple in Wisconsin, you know, pretty much every 
public space that America is now a potential target. No, Cliff, you're exactly right, and I so appreciate your comments. That's a really key point. Gun safety really needs to be the centerpiece of any counterterrorism strategy. And I think it's maddening when we put up a wall that says, well, this is terrorism and this is guns. They're one and the same. It doesn't, you know, different shooters are are motivated by different things. Sometimes it's an interpretation of religion. Sometimes it's some kind of other instability. But the one thing that's the same is the gun and the easy access to the gun. And I think politicians who support gun safety really need to be making that connection because that's really, really key, particularly in this new era and in this new threat we're now facing. That's a great point. Tim? You know, Cliff brings up the point of, you know, if this could save just one life, then we should absolutely do it. And he's absolutely right. You know, the NRA and the gun lobby says, well, geez, everything the president said would not have stopped a single of these mass shootings that have happened over the last several years. So therefore, we shouldn't do any of them at all. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is that these mass shootings are just a very small percentage of the gun violence that our communities see every day. We have more than 30 people killed a day by gun violence from Chicago to uh, communities throughout throughout the country. And And we can do more to fix it. We can definitely do more. If you're tuning in, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Michelle Jawando. Igor and Tim, you were great guests. We can't wait to have you back on the show. Appreciate you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, and happy birthday. That's right. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. If you're just joining us, I am Michelle Jawando. I'm filling in as a guest host for Leslie today. And I'm so happy that you've tuned in. I'm really excited to engage in a conversation with you. And if you want to give us a call, you can do that at 888-653-7543. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter at Michelle Jawando. You know, so for those who are just joining Joining us this hour, I shared, I currently serve as our Vice President of Legal Progress here at the Center for American Progress. And uh, my next topic is is pretty near and dear to my heart. I I may have shared last hour, my husband is William Jawando, who's actually a candidate for Congress in the 8th District of Maryland. Um, So that's like Silver Spring, Tacoma Park. But in that community, we have a huge refugee community. And I'm actually pretty proud because Secretary Kerry visited one of the uh, refugee kind of relocation centers in our community. Um, And my husband and I, we both have family who are international from all over the world. Um, His father came to this country in view of a better tomorrow and kind of imagine a different world for his life. He was escaping the Biafran War in Nigeria, came over to this country met his, my mother-in-law, I say mother-in-love because I actually have one of those, uh, those rare people who have a great mother-in-law, which is, which is pretty awesome, uh, who's a little white woman from Kansas, and they met and created my husband, and 12 years later, we're still going strong. Hey, honey, uh, please don't forget to pick up the kids. Um, but in studio, joining us to talk about kind of the refugee crisis um, is Bill Danvers, who's one of our senior fellows here at the Center for American Progress 
Bill has a huge, really long resume that I'm not going to read, but I am going to let him just talk a little bit about how important this moment of time, where we are, the kind of rhetoric and language, and really what this country has always been and how we're starting to see some people who are moving away from that ideal. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity, Michelle, to talk about this. And I just want to mention that my brother-in-law actually teaches in the Silver Spring area. Oh. English as a second language and has done it for close that's to 20 right. years. Oh, that's um, awesome. And I live in Arlington, and it's a community that has many languages. That's right. That's and, right. And, and I've always looked at that. And my, actually, my wife was born overseas, and my mother-in-law, my, my mother-in-law as well, was, <laughs> was too. And that, none of that would have happened if we didn't have a, a, an open-door immigration policy and if we hadn't accepted refugees. That's right. Um, so we would lose so much by not doing that. I really think that it's been an incredible opportunity for me to live in a community that has so many different cultures, and the food is great as well. The food is amazing. And we have the best Thanksgiving. Absolutely, but, but, but also the economics of it. I mean, you look at countries, for instance, like Japan and Germany, mm-hmm. and even China, mm-hmm. where you've got a demographic shift that really doesn't play to their advantage. And in this country, we don't have that problem. And the reason we don't have that problem is because we do have an open-door policy. And we've always had an open-door policy. I would not be here if we didn't have one. My grandfather was born overseas. My great-grandfather was born overseas. So uh, I, I think it's not only essential because it's the right thing to do, it's, it's, it's in concert with American values, but also because it's economically sound. So what is your response to kind of the, you know, we've seen a lot of rhetoric lately um, about kind of the refugee crisis and some who basically their response is we shouldn't let anybody in because there may be one terrorist among them which I think is you know obviously completely overblown but kind of why don't you kind of give some of the myths and facts about kind of our process how people come to this country Um, just share that with some of our listeners well what I'd like to do if it's okay is I'd like to sort of pose a different, a, a different, um, and I hate to use this word, a different scenario. I love it. Uh, um, and that is, what would happen if we don't let refugees in? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, do we want to have a generation of individuals and families without a place to live, mm-hmm. without a future, and without a country? And doesn't make that make them much more vulnerable to the kind of rhetoric and messaging of terrorist groups like ISIS? That's right. So, in effect, ISIS invites them and we slam the door in their faces, well, I don't think that works to our advantage. And it certainly doesn't work to their advantage. Now, we need to have a global program that balances security concerns with humanitarian concerns, but I think closing the door on refugees is a huge mistake, mistake, not only because it's not the right thing to do, but because I think it will hurt us, as I mentioned, because of economics, but I think also because of security concerns. We don't want to leave people out in the cold, because then what's their alternative but to turn to a more radical side? And I don't think that that helps anyone. How have you felt the administration has dealt with this, both in a communications standpoint and actually the process and the policies that you've seen the president put forth? Well, Ann Richard, who's the Assistant Secretary of State that deals with refugee issues, um, is a good friend. So I'm a little biased. I think she's done an amazing job. I would agree. But I'm biased, too. Oh, you know Ann, too. (laughs) So well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And she she did it before when she was at IRC. Um, And Ann goes out and gives speeches to places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and tells people why refugees 
add to a community, why they're a plus to a community economically, socially, and over time, maybe even politically. Um, I, and, and I think that's – so in that regard, the administration, I think, has done a pretty good job. I, I, one of the, I like a lot of things about our president, but one of the things I really like about him is that he has a level head, and he sort of approached this in a very level-headed way. And I think in part – uh, because he's done that, we're in a better place than we would have been had there been an overreaction. Um, he's willing to deal with the, with, with, with the visa program, and he's willing to take a hard look at it. But in terms of letting in refugees, actually our process is pretty slow. What we really need is more resources so that we can process people more quickly. So if you had a magic wand, you're at the uh, GOP debate tonight, what question would you ask? I'd ask the one that you asked, and, mm -hmm. I, and I'd ask them to take a look at the security side of this because I really do believe that when people don't feel they have an alternative they do become more radicalized I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and you can see that I spent a lot of time in, in, in the developing world as well and you can see that if you don't give people an alternative then what are they going to do but to turn to sort of a darker alternative an alternative that doesn't really it isn't really in sync with American values and with 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 the kind of kind of policies that we want to promote so in 2016, how much do you think that this kind of conversation about refugees is going to factor into the political debate? Do you expect that we'll be talking about this in November? Do you think we're kind of past that and now we're just talking about implementation and it's a kind of small niche conversation? Or do you think it will be something front and center? I think it will be part of the conversation in part because um, immigration will certainly be there. And, 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 and a lot of the GOP candidates have focused on immigration. Immigration as as an issue, and, and and the sad thing is, I worked on the Simpson-Mazzoli bill for for the chairman of the Hispanic Caucus in the 1980s, uh, Congressman Bobby Garcia, and, and and there really was kind of a give and take uh, on both sides of the aisle, and and the sad thing is, this that seems to no longer be the case, and we absolutely positively need that for all the reasons that I mentioned before. In terms of the refugee issue. I'm afraid if there's one more attack, and, and God knows I hope that doesn't happen, it will certainly be part of the conversation as well. So if my listeners, and I so appreciate for those who are tuning in, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to engage in the conversation, give us a call at 888-653-7543. In studio joining us is Bill Danvers, who's a sing senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. One of the most disturbing things I think about kind of where we are today is this kind of Donald Trumpism, um, in particular his comments about um, the Muslim community and Islam as a religion. And it's fascinating to see how that has resonated, unfortunately, with a segment of the American public. How do we combat that? Like, what are we doing? You talked a little bit about your, I think, is it your sister or your brother-in-law who's a teacher mm -hmm, and is, mm -hmm. you know, my family. There are tons of people my who family. are, right. And so how do we how do we make sure that the next generation cannot kind of be infected with that same kind of dangerous rhetoric that we're seeing coming out from our leading Dem uh, Republican candidate for president. Well, I think the good news about all that is is it doesn't appeal to the younger generation in quite the same way. And I can say that with some authority because my daughter's 25 and my son is 29, and they find it absolutely positively ridiculous. That's great. Um, they don't buy into it. They don't. They don't. They think it's like. Why are we even talking about these sorts of things? Um, but I'd like to, if I may, make a point about this whole issue of Islamophobia. Um, that is such a huge 
mistake. And it's a huge mistake, again, because it's the wrong thing to do, because we need to be inclusive. But it's also a huge mistake because Muslim communities in the United States and abroad have really been as much, if not more, the victims than anyone else. That's right. They need to be our partners. They want to be our partners. They have a great sense of who these people are in ISIS and, 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 and al-Qaeda. They have a much better and clearer sense than we do. And if we don't embrace that partnership, we lose an incredible ally and we alienate a community that, that has, has really made an, an incredible contribution to the United States, both economically, politically, and I, I, I would suggest socially. Bill, you've been an amazing guest. We so appreciate you joining us today. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Bill, you're going to come back? Anytime. All Already. Right. All right. Let's talk baseball. Let's talk baseball. <laughs> Let's go Mets. All Let's right. go Mets. Oh, here we go. All right, everybody. Thank this you so is much, the Michelle. Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back in just a bit. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. 888-6-LESLIE. practice of drawing our congressional districts so that politicians can pick their voters and not the other way around. Let a bipartisan group do it. I believe we've got to reduce the influence of money in our politics so that a handful of families or hidden interests can bankroll our elections. And if our existing approach to campaign finance reform can't pass muster in the courts, we need to work together to find a real solution, because it's a problem. And most of you don't like raising money. I know. I've done it. We've got to make it easier to vote, not harder. We need to modernize it for the way we live now. This is America. We want to make it easier for people to participate. And over the course of this year, I intend to travel the country to push for reforms that do just that. But I can't do these things on my own. Changes in our political process, in not just who gets elected, but how they get elected, that will only happen when the American people demand it. It depends this on you. This is Michelle Jawando, and if you are joining us, you are tuning in to the Leslie Marshall Show. That was not Leslie Marshall. That was POTUS um, on Tuesday for the State of the Union. And if you want to join in, in this conversation as we get ready to bring in our next guest, you can give us a call at 888-653-7543. And I want to talk all things voting, money, and politics, and the outsides 
influence of money and politics with none other than my dear friend Lisa Gilbert, who's the director of Public Citizens Congress Watch Division, where she advocates for government transparency, integrity, financial reform, civil justice, and consumer protection. Basically, she fights for us every single day. Lisa Gilbert. Hey, Michelle, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Lisa, you and I, I know we were really excited on Tuesday as we heard the president really make this commitment uh, his last year in office that he wants to do more to get money out of politics. But can you give, I don't think people quite understand the scope of the way that money infects our political process. They have an idea, but don't quite get it. Can you give our listeners just a, a, a few, a sense of kind of what we're dealing with right now? Definitely. And I think whatever sense the American people have of the infection, they are right. And it's even more pervasive and contagious than they could imagine. I think uh, over the last eight years, uh, we've seen you know ongoing worsening of this problem. The Citizens United decision unleashed floodgates of corporate money, uh, allowing it to go directly to uh, independent expenditure campaigns. So, so long as a, an entity doesn't coordinate with a candidate, doesn't coordinate with a party, it can spend in an unlimited way. So we're talking about uh, corporations dipping right into their coffers, the CEOs deciding they want to play in politics, and then they do. Uh, that money is dark. The public doesn't know where it's coming from. They don't know that they've probably invested in it, um, and that's a huge problem. Uh, it's still worse. Uh, a court decision that happened a few years later, the McCutcheon decision, uh, further empowers the richest among us to spend more than they already do, which, as you might imagine, is a lot. Um, so now they can give uh, to as many different uh, candidates and parties as they want, um, you know, just kind of further empowering uh, the 1% of the 1% to spend. Uh, we've seen super PACs grow and flourish. Uh, and certainly now is the moment when the president should be acting on this problem because the public really gets it. They see the attack ads on their TVs and they, they want to know what's going on behind it, where the money comes from. And, you know, I uh, I was listening to um, a segment recently and, you know, for our listeners who were tuning in the last segment, you know, I shared my husband, uh, Will Juwando, he's a candidate running for Congress, um, mm-hmm. but his two competitors or some of his competitors are without question, they're millionaires. And someone through the course of this campaign pointed out to me, which I didn't know before, that more than half of Congress are millionaires for the first time ever in the history of our country. What does that do to our politics, Lisa, when we have most of the people who are representing us in Congress are millionaires? And that seems to be a little bit out of touch with most of the American people. Yes, that's completely right. And it means that they don't always understand the problems that their constituents face. Uh, You know, the fact that they come from a different background, coupled with the fact that they were elected by uh, their friends, fellow millionaires and billionaires, uh, who put money into their campaigns and corporate interests who did the same, uh, just further entrenches uh, politicians on the wrong side of, of too many issues. And so certainly, you know, one way to deal with that part of the problem is to figure out how to put in place public financing systems where uh, small donors, you and me, are empowered uh, to give money in politics and have that uh, counter, the money that comes in from, from millionaires and billionaires, and just give uh, elected officials a really balanced 
sense and a reason to listen to the people who truthfully vote for them rather than their donors. And what about this executive order? Because I know you've done a lot of real great work on the executive order. Can you tell the our listeners um, a little bit about that work? Definitely. So uh, as I was talking about earlier, the dark money problem is, is pretty out of control. Uh, and we think about tracing the sources of the secret money back. Uh, we really don't have any mechanisms. Congress tried to pass uh, a bill called the Disclose Act a couple times. Uh, they failed by one vote. Uh, you know, so now there are very few avenues left to get to the bottom of the secret spending. One of them is for the president to issue an executive order, which would require all federal contractors to disclose their spending. Uh, contractors or corporations, uh, if this order went into place, 70% of the Fortune 100 would have their political spending disclosed. Wow. We have a sense. That's amazing. Uh, Lisa, there's never enough time when I'm with you, but I love talking to you, and you'll have to come back. We so appreciate you, Lisa Gilbert from Public Citizen. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Michelle Jawando. Welcome back. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. If you're just joining us, I'm Michelle Jawando, filling in as the guest host this afternoon. And thanks so much for sticking with us. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-653-7543. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter at Michelle Jawando. So I'm excited about uh, my next guest for a number of reasons. One being, she's my boss, but she's actually like the best one. <laughs> no so one is your boss. I'm my very, dear. I am. I am very excited <laughs> about the woman who's in our studio because she is none other than Angie Kelly, Angela Kelly, Executive Director for the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Angie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, my friend. <laughs> I know you um, are doing a lot on a lot of issues, uh, organizing on around the debate, GOP debate tonight, um, whether it's a lot of your work that you've been doing on guns. But the reason we brought Angie in today is to talk about these ICE raids yeah. um, and particularly really focusing on Central American families. Um, and it seems like something is out of whack and yeah. something's happening. Can yeah. you give our listeners a sense of just the lay of the land? Because I think people have heard bits and pieces, yeah. and they haven't really heard enough yeah. to be upset about it. Right. But I think our listeners on this show would be. So yeah, well, tell them what's happening. Yeah, it's it's a head snapper. Yeah. It really is coming from this administration um, that I think has really been trying to do right by immigrants. Um, so what we know is that uh, on January 2nd, that ICE, that's Immigration Enforcement, um, started conducting residential immigration raids. So this is knocking on the doors pre-dawn hours. Um, and who they're targeting are women and children from Central America. Um, so they are rousing kids out of their beds in their pajamas. Um, there are lots of reports of car seats having to be put into the ICE vans. Um, and they are arrest they've arrested about 121 people in the raids to date. Um, about half of them have already been deported, um, and they say that they are targeting more recently arrived Central Americans. Um, so it is stunning and terrifying um, because other people are also being picked up, of course. There are a number of Mexicans that have been deported. 
Um, and, and this is just frankly a tactic that in this country where undocumented people don't all live in one apartment building by themselves, mm -hmm. um, you know, just setting aside just how awful it is for the undocumented, it's really just spreading terror in the community. So one of the things that has struck me is the the rhetoric of the Obama administration seemed to be moving away from kind of this knock and drag raids that we actually saw a little bit more at the first uh, half of the administration. You heard uh, Janet Morgia, who is the president of the National Council of La Raza, who called the president famously the deporter in chief. Yeah. And so you, you thought you saw a turn in how the administration was approaching, but something seems to have shifted. Yes. Uh, what, yeah. Why? Good, good, what, what happened? Good, good, good memory and, and good point. Um, the administration really did come out of the box very aggressively, particularly in its first term. Um, and so by year uh, four or beginning part of the second term, this president had already deported more people than Bush had in eight years. Um, and so he was called the deporter in chief. He was called out for that reason. Um, and then we began to see a turnaround when he announced a program called DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals for the Dreamers. Um, and that was announced in June of 2012. It's been wildly successful in terms of a lot of young people coming forward, getting work authorizations. And then we saw two years later, the president in November of 2014, announcing these expansive executive orders, um, again, for people uh, who have been here for a long time. And in this case, it was the parents of US citizens. And that program that he announced in November of 2014 would cover up to like 4 million people. Um, so that was extraordinarily bold and smart of the president in November 2014. And I'm not sure what's happened um, because this is very aggressive and is very destabilizing to oh, American families. It's yeah. families. It's women and kids. It's women, it's women and, and kids. kids. Yep. Yeah. So I have, I, I think I want to go to one of our callers sure. who uh, we have, I think, on the line, Dean from Buffalo. Dean, are you on? Yep. Um, just let me say you're doing a great job, Philman. Oh, thank you, Dean. I really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to say, don't get me wrong, I am a huge Obama supporter. If I could, I would vote for him all over again. I know what you um, mean. <laughs> it does seem kind of hypocritical because we're letting in Syrian refugees from a very dangerous um, situation. And South America is also a very unsettled, um, dangerous situation. And yet we're saying to them, hey, wait a minute. No, 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 we don't want you. Yeah, yeah um, excellent point. It, it, just, it just seems like there should be a uniformed approach. Dean, you hit the nail I'm, on the I'm head. I'm going to vote for Dean. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> you, you should you run, for okay, president. Dean? We got you. Super PAC for Dean. I don't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we hear you. So, Angie, I mean, yeah. I think that's exactly right. I think people are kind of looking at this kind of juxtaposition. We're saying welcome refugees, but at the same time, we're deporting yeah. women and children yeah. in the dead of night. Talk about cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. That, that makes no sense. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Dean's absolutely right. We're talking about three countries in particular, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, um, the homicide rate for those three countries are among the top five in the world. Um, and in terms of deaths of women and children, they rank one and two, respectively, um, El Salvador and, and Honduras. So these are very, very dangerous conditions. And people are fleeing. 
Um, and the notion that doing these raids may somehow deter people from coming to the United States is just so completely removed from the reality um, when you know you're a mother and you're facing your teenage daughter, you know, getting recruited into a gang, getting repeatedly raped, getting possibly killed, or your husband who's already disappeared, you're not going to be thinking about, gee, if I go to the U.S., maybe someone is going to, you know, raid me one. You know, that's not that's just not how it, it works. And in fact, we've seen a number of people from these countries fleeing not just to the U.S., but to Panama, to Costa Rica, to Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a regional crisis of true refugees that are coming to the U.S. Um, and we absolutely need to be thoughtful about who we let in and under what conditions, but the, the notion that we're going to sink so low to start knocking on doors, breaking down doors, <laughs> if only they were knocking, um, in the middle of the night and rousing women and kids out of their... I mean, that's just not who this country is. Well, where do we go from here? Yeah. What in our listeners are a really engaged bunch. Um, is there something for them to do? What, yes. should, what should our listeners be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we look, we've already seen actually the Democrats, particularly in the House side, be um, very vocal against the president's action. Um, so I think if, if your member has already signed the letter, 140 House Democrats did, um, then thank him or her and say, please do more. Senate has yet to really weigh in on this. Some senators have spoken up, but I always think it's good to call your members of Congress. Um, mayors, local police um, have also expressed concerns from certain jurisdictions because they're like, well, wait a minute, the last thing we want are people to be afraid of law enforcement. Um, and so I think weighing in with anyone uh, who's an elected official in your community is, is very important. Um, and I also think just, you know, helping people get the, the facts straight on what's going on because there is so much fear in the community. So there's lots of good legal aid offices that can give people good advice. Um, we've seen an uptick in, um, unfortunately, kids not showing up at schools, um, babies cancel their parents canceling their vaccination appointments, um, kids not going to after school programs. I mean, the, the ramifications are profound. And I mean, part of what, you know, we see in, in someone like Donald Trump is right. It's about the other. Mm -hmm. It's the about you're different, you're other, you dehumanize people. Right. And I think the more that we can stand up and say, no, that that's not right. Yep. Um, I think I think that that's profound. Yep. So letter to the editor and any of and any and all of that is good stuff. So listeners, you heard you have work to do and it's not finished. But hopefully Angie Kelly can help us lead the way. Angie, we so appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back in a bit. Welcome back. 
you are listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. I've been your guest host for the last two and a half hours or so, and I just want to say thank you. We've had amazing callers, uh, really great questions. Our guests have been amazing, and there's been a great support team here. So the Leslie Marshall Show, always one that does it with class and style. So hopefully they'll have me back. Um, on the line, though, I'm really excited for this last guest, um, Closing out this uh, day uh, is Nikki Fisher, who's the executive director of the Oregon Bus Project. Hi, Nikki. Are you on? Yeah, I'm on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And for our listeners who are just tuning in, this is Michelle Jawando. I'm filling in as a guest host for the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a ring, 888-653-7543. So, Nikki, I wanted, first off, I love the best project. Um, It's always been a really innovative way to connect civic engagement for people, particularly young people. Um, So I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about who the bus project is and particularly what you're doing out in Oregon. But the reason I I wanted you on the show is to talk about what Oregon is doing on automatic voter registration. Uh, For our listeners who may not know my, um, a lot of my career I've spent doing voting rights law and civil rights law. And I basically believe that automatic voter reg is the must as we move into the next decade. Like we have to get this done in every state across the country. So Nikki, tell us about the bus and tell people about what automatic voter registration is. Yeah. So again, thank you for having us. We're really excited. Um, The bus project is an idea that emerged uh, here in Oregon, and and basically it's a youth-led organization that uh, trains leaders how to become future generations of political activists, whether that's running for office, whether that's leading nonprofits. We're a hands-on youth-led organization that makes politics accessible accessible for young people. Um, And through that, the the great work that we've been doing here at the bus is essentially trying to expand access for all Oregonians um, that are eligible to receive a ballot in the mail. And um, here we were talking to young people and we were asking them why they weren't voting. And the common thing that we kept hearing over and over again was we don't know when the deadline to register to vote is. So we met a few years ago with some young activists and we're trying to figure out how do we how do we fix this problem? And it was a bunch of young kids meeting with the then Secretary of State, and we came up with this concept called Oregon Motor Voter. And essentially the idea is when you go to the DMV, you're registered to vote, and you have a chance to opt out if you don't want to be a participant. But essentially this is going to register 300,000 new Oregon voters by the 2016 election. So I just want to pause for a second and think about that number, 300,000 new voters. Are That's amazing. Because of this that is so amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. Now, Nikki, one of the questions I did have is just technical, right? So my understanding is you're automatically put on the voter rolls and you have the option to opt out. But when you're automatically registered, you are registered without a political party. How does one then decide, you know, I'm a proud Democrat. Um, Democrats have their issues. But if I don't want to remain an independent and I want to be a Democrat, how do you pick your party identification? 
Yeah, so um, the Secretary of State here has done a really incredible job working with um, partners and community members, doing rule sharing to make sure that she got the data piece of this right. Um, so essentially what, what happens here in Oregon is you go to the DMV, you get a driver's card, and then um, the, uh, the Secretary of State's office sends you a postcard with the information that you are a new registered voter and that you have 21 days to opt out or click or pick a political party. So if you want to remain a non-affiliated voter, that's fine. You can stay a, stay a voter don't have to do anything. If you want to become a Republican or a Democrat, then you check that box, send it back to the Secretary of State's office, and they update your voter information. So, you know, that is so important, and, and I appreciate you kind of walking through the steps because I think that's a question that people may have with how the process works. One of the reasons I'm so excited is I think this is something Democrats and Republicans can get behind. You know, when we talk about on the conservative side, they have issues of voter integrity. This answers that question. On the Democratic side, it's how do you get more people engaged in the process? This seems to be the panacea for both sides and their concerns. Would you say that's about right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we talk to uh, rural Oregonians about is, you know, oftentimes these individuals go to get their driver's license card, and and because of where they live, they aren't a part of the really active voter registration drives of the bus project that's based in Portland. So a lot of these young rural Oregonians who tend to be conservative are often missed. So this is a perfect opportunity. We know those young people are going to get driver's cards driver's license um, in rural Oregon, and now they're picked up by this, and it's such a great opportunity to make sure that it's an inclusive process, and it really benefits all political parties. So we're really excited about this, and we think it's a really great bipartisan way to make sure that people have access to the ballot. And how do we get other states excited about this? Please tell me that you literally are getting on a bus and traveling (laughs) state to state and telling everybody how great and smart Oregon is right now. Yeah, we were really excited to um, hear the president during the State of the Union give a nod to to Oregon and the modernization process. Um, We're really excited to see the same similar process happen in red states and blue states. Um, Folks are excited about it and talking about it. And to to the bus's credit, we have affiliates in places like Illinois and uh, Washington and different places who, you know, this idea is really a young person idea. It's really building that movement. And we're seeing it pop up in red states, blue states, and all over. So we hope that it spreads. And here in Oregon, we're happy to talk about our, our bus victory any way we can. Well, I'm going to keep on talking about it as long as I can. Yes. What what have you seen as you've been going through this process has been the biggest point of confusion? What are what are people most afraid of when they hear um, about automatic voter reg? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing is just the unknown. I think, um, you know, so, so many folks have questions, and I think that they all come from a really great place. So the best project is here. We're working with the Secretary of State's office and so many great coalition partners to help answer some of those questions. Um, we know that the numbers were uh, a big, you know, guessing game, and we're excited to report that um, we're expecting at least 10,000 people being registered a month. I mean, so I a lot can't... of people had... 
You got to say that number again. 10,000 people. As someone who like is a lover of politics and policy and you know, I'm a I'm unfortunately call me naive, I'm a true believer in our democracy, right? And I think it works best when we're all engaged. And it's okay for us to have different ideas and feel strongly on either sides with reasonable rational arguments. But what's most important is giving people access to be able to exercise that idea and making sure that it's open for everybody. The thing that pisses me off, and I hope I can say that, the thing that makes me so upset is the fact that there are people who are trying to stop that process from happening or believe that somehow their idea is stronger if fewer people are engaged in the process, but more. That means you're afraid. The, you're, you think your idea is weak and you can't really engage. And I'm excited because Automatic Voter Reg gives everybody an opportunity to really engage in the process. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Nikki, any final last thoughts? Yeah, I, I just want to thank you so much for letting us talk about our big victory here. We're so excited to to see this in action, and we think that 2016 is a really great opportunity. I think we're going to have some big successes here in Oregon, and if we can get folks active and engaged, the better off we are, even if it impacts one voter. Um, we're, we're excited about the work that we've done around this, so thank you. Well, if we have any of our listeners tuning in from Oregon, please send Nikki a thank you card. She worked really hard on this. Um, you have been a great guest. You have been a great um, audience today tuning in. We had some really good callers on, and I appreciate everyone sticking in and staying um, with the Leslie Marshall Show. Hope I made you happy as a good guest host. Uh, if you have any questions, follow me on Twitter. I'm happy to answer them. And make sure you remember this is your democracy too. Get engaged, pay attention, be aware, get yourselves informed. Every little bit makes a difference. Hopefully, I'll be back with you again soon. Thanks again. This is Michelle Jawando for The Leslie Marshall Show. You have a great day.